This podcast is offered by the San Francisco Zen Center on the web at www.sfcc.org. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I imagine there are people who are joining from many, many time zones. I want to thank the San Francisco Zen Center for hosting me in this talk, and specifically Brenda Proudfoot and Hara Nancy Pennant. Really, this opportunity is such a blessing. Um, and I want to begin by calling in my ancestral lineage because I practice traditions where my ancestors walk with me, they're present with me, and I like to just acknowledge that it is because of their existence that I'm actually here in the world. Bear with me, I just felt a little emotion. I also call in the lineage of all my teachers of all the traditions in all of my lifetimes. And that my intention is that today's talk will be beneficial. I'd like to begin by just generating our motivation. So if you feel so inclined, bring your hands at prayer to your heart, just connecting with the heartfelt sense a motivation and intention for this talk for all of us that if uncomfortable feelings arise we'll let them transform into their true nature which is emptiness may we all be able to listen with beginner's mind putting aside our judgments our beliefs the things that constrain us and separate us and whatever we learn in this talk, may it be a benefit to ourselves and to all sentient beings everywhere. I want to thank you also for that very great introduction. I'm going to just share a little bit more who I am. I am a black woman, woman of African descent, raised outside of New York City in a working class, middle class black family. A black family that supported the idea that if you were educated, you would be benefited, that encouraged me to go into, onto higher education, that reminded me that my actions in the world not only reflected on me, but reflected on everybody in my family and all of my ancestors. That was a little bit of a heavy weight to walk with, but I did the best I could. So as I said, I'm considered educated. Yeah, I'm always open to learning. Actually, I have a hunger for information and learning. And often, that's learning about people. I'm married. I am a mother. 
And as was said, I'm a Vajrayana Buddhist teacher. I'm also a priest in the West African system of Ifa. In my professional life, in addition to being a university professor, I'm a therapist, uh, integrative mind, body, spirit. I'm an emotional intelligence coach and an anti-oppression and anti-racism trainer. I am a person who's serious and analytical and also I'm a person who loves to have fun. I say all of this to give you a broader picture of who I am in the world and how I'm arriving in this moment. I have practiced Vajrayana Buddhism for 32 years and as was stated, I'm a student of Lama Sultram Alioni. I tried to come up with a title for this talk. I came up with some sort of vague thing, diversity and Dharma, but really, as I was sitting down, I think the title is, Are You With Me? Are you with me? Right now, we are in this great moment that's filled with potential filled with potential for change. And despite how many people around the world are suffering, have been suffering from the pandemic, from the violence that humans continually seem to perpetrate against each other, we have a possibility to make a really great shift and a great change certainly in the United States, but I think that that can emanate out into other places. In the US, the moment that George Floyd cried out for his mother as he was being crushed by the knee of another human, crushed by a system of oppression and repression, that many folks could not see something shifted. And in fact, we saw evidence of that shift when people showed up. Are you with me? When people showed up and rallied around the cry, Black Lives Matter. The cataracts blinding so many to the truth that Black, Brown, Indigenous, and people of color confront in their daily, daily lives for generations. Those cataracts were lasered off by that particular scene. And people, it's almost as if they were beginning to wake up, rubbing the sleep out of their eyes, recognizing things that had been denied for so, so very long. When Brianna Taylor was gunned down in her home, more people were able to access a kind of empathy. Because many of us recognized, wow, that could be me. That could be my family. That could be my neighbor. And again, a movement to action. This is all coming with the history 
of particular kind of violence here in America. All of those who have been murdered, all the nameless, we know some of the names, but so many nameless folk living in a system that is skewed to benefit some at the expense of many. We heard the cry, Black Lives Matter. But do they really? Do they only matter when these extreme acts of violence occur? Do they only matter when we are shocked? Or do they matter because we are all humans in this human experiment? I hold the hope that this really is a moment where great change can happen. That change happens on a number of levels. It happens internally. It happens when we change our ideas. It happens when we change our gut judgments. It happens when we remember things that we were told by elders that are not true. That hope rides on my expectation that when all is said and done, people will rise to the occasion. People will take the higher path. People will manifest their best selves. Some people who are hearing this might think, oh, come on, Carla, really? Look at what's been demonstrated. And yet, I continue to see the moments of empathy, the moments of connection, the moments where people show up just because it's the right thing to do. So I'm asking you to just think about how you might manifest your highest expression as a human, how you might connect to the humanness of others, and how you might be able to support the hope and actually make it a reality. Of course, to get to a place where we really have the change that so many have been looking for, that so many have been articulating, that so many have been standing their ground about. We have to do some real work. The work that's required, it is hard work. Now, interestingly, sometimes when people come into my office, you know, they're working with some emotion and they say, it's hard. It's hard, and it's like, yes, it is hard, but it's not impossible to push through. It's not impossible to transform. It's not impossible to manifest compassion, a fierce compassion. But clearly the work is hard, and it's dirty. It's not pretty work, it's not light work. We have to be willing to get our hands dirty so to speak. 
the work that we need to do to get to a better place, to actually manifest social justice in this world is painful work. In many instances, so many of us come to these moments with our own hurts, with our own pain, with our own wounds. The, some of the work is to heal that. If we can push through the pain, through the difficulty, we can arrive at a place where maybe there's a little more spaciousness. Maybe there's a little more freedom. Maybe there's a nanosecond recognition of true liberation. As I said, I'm a Vajrayana practitioner. I am a Chud practitioner, which is a practice that was developed by Machik Lobdron, an 11th century Tibetan woman. And in this particular practice, the practitioner goes into scary, isolated places, sometimes places where damaging things or violence might have occurred, um, into cemeteries, empty buildings, New York City subway system, and they practice. It's a noisy practice with a drum and a bell to stir things up to stir up energy, to stir up emotion, to stir up beating, beings, and actually allowing the practitioner to perform a tremendous act of generosity and to push through their fear. This pushing through fear is called dulshok, in Tibetan, sometimes translated as vanquishing conduct. Another way to think about this, this is a process where we take ourselves to the edge, the edge of our fear, the edge of our anger, the edge of our emotion. We face it and it's transformed. So, it requires a little bit of courage. When that happens though, when you get to your edge and you push through, there is, there's this relief. There's this sense that, oh, the tension, the struggle drops away. Because often we're doing this like kind of push me, pull you thing with fear, you know, I feel it, I shouldn't be feeling it. I feel it, I need to move away from it. I feel it, I've got all sorts of things attached to it. But Dulshuk allows us the opportunity to through it and it drops. I ask you, are you a person who believes in dignity and freedom for all. Are you a person who believes that suffering can truly end? And as Buddhists, we practice in such a way, right? That suffering will end. But I don't know about you, occasionally I have a little doubt. So 
Sometimes that doubt creeps in when I sit on my cushion and I have this voice is, why are you doing this? So then I have to look at, do I really believe that suffering can truly end? And I can tell you that I do. Are you a person who believes that your actions, no matter how small, have effects, consequences? That your actions can make a difference? If you believe in these ideals, these possibilities, then you're required to now take action. As a Dharma practitioner, we have signed up to the action of relieving suffering for ourselves and for others. And again, I say, that's hard work. It requires courage. Excuse me. It also requires community. That's one of the reasons why Sangha is so important. <clears throat> like-minded community. But like-minded community doesn't have to always look like me. Like-minded community may look different, may be composed of variety. It's my work to be able to be present with all that arrives. When we think about the actions that we take, that action can occur on the level of a wish. I wish that all beings could live without suffering. I wish that all beings had happiness and the causes of happiness. So in the relative realm, that's a good place to begin. I have the intention, I wish, I hope I'm holding that space so that that may manifest. And here I'm talking about bodhicitta, the Sanskrit word that translates commonly as awakened mind or awakening mind. And of course, as many of you know, I'm not talking about the brain mind not the one that's in our head. I'm really speaking about the heart-mind. Where our emotions reside. Where actually we make connection, like heartfelt connections with other beings. In manifesting bodhicitta, we're holding that compassionate wish to attain enlightenment for the benefit of ourselves and other sentient beings. We practice, we meditate with this intention. We also practice to end suffering. When I talk about compassion, compassion again, requires courage. Being compassionate, being present with what is, 
and seeing the possibility, the potentiality for change. When we practice as Buddhists, we commit first, do no harm. Or we practice to reduce our negative thoughts and actions, increasing our positive or beneficial thoughts and actions. This is important. But sometimes we're not aware of the kind of harm that gets done in human interactions on the unconscious level. Where there's an imbalance, but we don't recognize that imbalance. Where our own experience blinds us to the different experiences of others. So being able to be looking at that and being present with that. It's important for us to think about, do I really bring bodhicitta, awakened mind, into my everyday activities? Do I manifest it when I have a brief conversation with the cashier in a store? Do I manifest it when I'm driving and I'm impatient and I need to get through the light and the person in front of me is just driving, moving too slowly? Often that's where my bodhicitta might slip. But really being able to look at how do I walk in the world with this? As Dharma practitioners, we don't have the luxury to look away, to run away from suffering. We don't have the luxury to look away, to run away from suffering. Our practice is here to help us transform it, to help us end it. When we manifest compassion, sometimes the most difficult practice is to look suffering and injustice in the eye, to not turn away, to not run into denial, to stay present, to witness, to breathe through our fear, our anger, or any emotion that arises. Remaining present creates the space for us to perhaps apply the right action. With a level of clarity knowing the right action and knowing that actually in terms of social justice, in terms of injustice, there are numerous actions that can be taken to make a shift, to transform. Certainly as spiritual practitioners, as Buddhist practitioners, we have the ability practice 
to really drop into our meditation. Maybe the four immeasurables, maybe Vipassana, six paramitas, deity practice, the wisdom of the Buddhas to give us so many ways to be able to do this, to be able to meditate, to be able to recognize our true nature. So we can use that energy actually to transform and alleviate suffering, injustice, imbalance on an energetic level. So this is important because our practice has power. Our practice shifts things. I like to think of like on a subatomic particle level that when I practice, when I manifest bodhicitta, when I manifest loving kindness, that ripples out into the universe. But this is not only where we stay. We practice and shift things on an energetic level and we must have the courage to counter the cultural scripts that we've incorporated, often unconsciously, bring them into our consciousness and take action to eradicate and transform them. Here's the work. We might have to examine our egos and really look at when might the energy of grasping come up for me? When might the energy of a kind of poverty mentality come up for me? When might the energy in my ego come up where I want to be first? I want to be the only one. We all experience these emotions. So examining what is the environment that allows that part of me to manifest. It's also important for us to acknowledge how our own human experiences have created a sense of alienation, a sense of abandonment, anxiety, trauma, poverty mentality, self-aggrandizement. So many of us are walking with so many wounds. It is our responsibility as members of a community. It is our responsibility as members of a Buddhist path to work to heal those wounds. But first, to be able to look at them, to be able to see them with a compassionate eye. Those experiences allow us to build or step into empathy. And empathy is a place where we can connect with others. Empathy is a place where I can demonstrate that I hear, I see, I witness 
your experience, I see your pain. Bodhicitta, awakened mind and fierce compassion. Ask yourself again, how do I compassionately travel in the world? And where is there slippage in the area of my compassion? Even taking some time to look at, well, how do I actually express that I am feeling compassion? How do I really communicate that to somebody else? In this work of social justice, in this work of creating equity, in this work of transforming a society that was built on exploitation, thinking about how white folks can take leadership from black, brown, indigenous people of color. And that's often a place where in organizations, things get really tense. The inability to take leadership from people of color that is being informed by what I call those implants, what might be unconscious, the judgments, the ideas, the beliefs that sometimes we're not even aware that we're walking with, that we hold. When we think about our centers, really looking at how do I each individual make my Dharma center more welcoming to all people. What actions do I take? Sometimes what makes a difference is just greeting somebody. Actually saying hello. extending that invitation, a kind of warmth that says you're welcome. And not an exaggerated sense, you know, sometimes we go a little bit extra, you know, and it's like, oh, I'm so happy you're here, I'm so happy you're here, I'm so happy you're here. Like, hmm. It's kind of like the middle way. How do we make our spaces more equitable? When we look at our Dharma centers, looking at who holds positions, positions of authority, positions of power, does that reflect even the, the town or city where our center is located? Are we making space? You know, sometimes those of us, we get to a space first. And I think it might be even like a kind of human experience. It's like, I got to the room. This is my room. Right? And then you come into the room. So now I'm going to welcome you into my room. 
but I'm still identifying it as my room, right? That's, that's kind of like that ego space. Maybe we want to identify it as the room. And again, I want to connect that to the history of living in an America that actually encouraged people as they entered this country to claim ownership of this country and to see themselves as the citizens, as the owners, as the real Americans. And then they could get to decide if the new immigrants, if the new people, if the brown people, if the people who were already here could actually be full participants. So really working with how do we demonstrate, not just create, how do we demonstrate equity? How do we ensure all voices are in the room? Sometimes the first space is to look at how much space our voice might be taking up. And maybe it's because we've got a lot of good ideas. Great. But if I'm in a room of people, if I'm in a collective, I'm not the only one who has ideas. Making some space for others to bring their interests to the table. I think in terms of how Buddhism has arrived in the US and how it actually has been developed and disseminated by white folks in America, some of that as a result of the kind of privileging that happens in this country. But I think it's important to remind ourselves that nobody owns this tradition. If we practice, we share. And again, we're working to go against a kind of capitalist mentality, right? Where everything is bought and sold and negotiated. And yes, centers need to be supported and need to support themselves. But in some ways, sometimes the way in which American Buddhism is presented, it's presented as if it's owned by a particular group. And other people, you know, well, if you come in and you get it good, if you don't, okay. As Buddhists, it is our responsibility to share this amazing transformative way of living with others. And of course, that's not proselytizing. But even as I have practiced for 32 years, I work just to meet people on an equitable space. When we look at unearthing some of the unconscious biases or the unconscious ways in which we have been taught to interact with difference, to interact with others, it's really helpful to look at what are the cultural scripts. 
And there are lots of cultural scripts in America. And thinking about how do we adjust those cultural scripts to be more inclusive, to be more equitable? How do we even learn about other racial cultural scripts? That's part of the work of building empathy, part of the work of actually making connection. So there's been a lot of talk about social justice and social justice movements and, and you know, all of a sudden we have a moment. Um, I was sharing with a friend of mine, uh, it's like, wow, if I go to Netflix or Hulu or any of those things for a distraction, I don't have to look hard for black movies. They're all running underneath. Um, and for me, it was like, wow, the books that suddenly people are discovering. I think it is worthwhile to investigate those. It's really important to interrogate whiteness to interrogate white supremacy, to revisit the history of this country and how whiteness and white supremacy is, has been a part of the fabric from the beginning of the colonial period. To bring it more personally, if you are white or white passing, to look at how white supremacy has benefited you. Now, it's important to do that with compassion. It's not useful to beat yourself up. It's not useful to allow that judge or the inner critic to chastise you, to shame you that makes it more difficult for us to move. Just taking an inventory of how white supremacy might have benefited you can be useful because it might show you the places where you can make a powerful shift, where you can take an action that benefits others. It'll be important for all Dharma centers to interrogate how white supremacy is active in the center, is active in the Sanghas. It's critical to listen to what people of color are saying to listen to what we need, to listen to who we are, to listen when we say we've experienced a microaggression, to listen, to breathe, to stay present, to apologize if harm was done, whether it was intended or not. to free ourselves up in many ways so that we can meet each other 
as human and encourage and support each other to manifest our highest expression or in emotional intelligence world it's called my best self. Can I manifest that more often than not? I remind us we are at a moment to be able to make great, I'll say great changes, because it's always like, oh, great change. No, great changes, many changes that really can shift the system, that can shift this world, that can shift this country, that can shift our communities into being a place where more people, where all people benefit, where all people are, have peace, where all people have access to liberty, where all, all people have access to food, to shelter, to basic care, to acknowledgement and recognition. We can build a society that manifests loving kindness in a real way. That manifests compassion in a grounded way. That even manifests sympathetic joy cutting through a little envy that might arise. And a society, actually a world where there's equanimity. Will you demonstrate that you're willing to stay in the process of transforming yourself and society through the painful, stressful moments? Will you practice Dolshuk with me? The Buddha is watching and waiting. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the San Francisco Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered at no cost, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your financial support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information, visit sfcc.org and click Giving. May we fully enjoy the Dharma.